Welcome to Hip Hop Movie Club, where three old heads put their old heads together to vibe on some of the most memorable or forgettable hip hop themed movies of all time. And here's HHMC with your HHMCs, Boogie, JB, and Dino Wright. Season 1, Episode 5, Style Wars. Style Wars is a 1983 documentary on early hip-hop culture directed by Tony Silver and produced in collaboration with Henry Chalfant. While the film covers all facets of early hip-hop culture, the main subject is the war between the New York City government and transit authority against graffiti artists in the early 80s. The film originally aired on PBS in January of 1984, and it won the Grand Jury Prize for Best Documentary at the Sundance Film Festival in 1983. So, Boogie, what did you think of Star Wars? Okay, the first thing I liked about it, I, I like that it was done as a documentary as opposed to a dramatization. I'm a, I'm a huge history buff. I love watching documentaries of all types. So to see this done as a documentary, it really just tapped into something special for me. And it, it, it grasped my interest a lot a lot better than, say, them putting up a fictionalized story and just kind of going through the motions with it. But um, that, was the, that was the one thing I did like. So this was kind of what we were talking about with Wild Style. We, we kind of brought it up as a point that it probably would have flowed better had it been done as a documentary. So this, I found it a little more interesting. And I like that it showcased actual artists, even those that opposed them. So you got, you know, all perspectives of it. It wasn't, it wasn't particularly one-sided, um, even though it kind of, you know, you, you want to root for the quote-unquote underground graffiti artists. They were, you know, doing some illegal acts. So you definitely want to get the other side of it as well. Um, they didn't use a ton of music in it, but the music that they did use was really, really good. I loved it. I loved every song that they chose. It was it was great to hear those those classics being played in in, in the movie as it transitioned through the scenes. Um, I did like that. It also showcased some of the b boy lifestyle because I'm a huge b boy fan. I loved watching b boy competitions to this day. Uh, you got to see the legendary Rocksteady crew. Anytime I see them on on screen, my eyes light up immediately. And it, and I like how they show how they they demonstrated some of their moves that they use as they as, as they're battling and, and et cetera. So. Those, those few things that I, I definitely loved about them about the documentary. Yeah, Boogie, I'll piggyback off of your comments. The music, there wasn't a ton of music in there, but the, their selection of songs was incredible. They they played the message from, from The Furious Five and Grandmaster Flash, you know, the one that everybody knows. Don't push me because I'm close to the edge. <laughs> yeah. When that intro comes on, you're like, yes, yes, this is <laughs> And the other one that really gets me out of my seat every time, I know we were chatting about this before, is uh, Rockin' It by The Fearless Four. That's one of my all-time favorites, <laughs> where that intro comes on and it's like, Rockin' It, Rockin' It, yes, he is Rockin' It, Tito! They just shout the names and they're Rockin' It, Rockin' It. <laughs> so good. I'm making a fool so of myself here, but that song was... <laughs> and, and when you... You have the backdrop of the graffiti and the dancing. It, it really pulls it all together. So the music was was awesome, even though there wasn't a ton of it there. Dino Wright, what do you think? 
So the one thing in talking about music that really resonated with me is there's a scene in the very beginning and it's the artist's scheme. And he's talking to someone else about what they did last night. And this is sampled in a Black Star song. So go back 24 years now to the first most deaf Talib Kweli album, most deaf and Talib Kweli or Black Star. And there's a song called Respiration. This is the beginning of the song as they sample the start. And so I've loved this album for 24 years and I hadn't seen Style Wars before. And so when they talk about, you use this dialogue and this is the dialogue they exactly use in the song. I got chills because this is one of my favorite songs ever. And this is the origin. I love talking, hearing about where these samples come from. And so that was like the one thing like, whoa, this really got my attention because this was like a cultural touchstone for me. Yeah, absolutely. Breathe in, mm-hmm. <laughs> breathe out. <laughs> All you see is crime in the city. Yeah, man. It just it was took funny. up the whole car. It's funny because I was, I, I had it on, like, I, I, I've seen it before, but I haven't seen it in a long time. So th- it was kind of like me watching it for the first time. So I had it in the background playing and I was, da- I had my head down and I heard, as soon as I heard the voice, my head whipped up. I'm like, wait a minute. Yes. Yes, it was like I was, and then I just started talking the whole part as he was talking. It was crazy. It just took up the whole car. It just it took up the whole, whole car. car. <laughs> All you see is a little small letters and crime. They say big black box of lettuce. <laughs> I've listened to that song so many times. Yes, classic gets album. Every time, it's it's great to go back to the origin of the of, of that clip. Uh, yeah, that was great. Oof. Oof. There's a lot of things I like about this movie, but that's certainly the thing that was like a personal favorite for me. Yeah. I mean, like, as soon as it came on, like, they dropped Eighth Wonder by Sugar Hill Gang. And, like, that song, yep. I mean, the Sugar Hill Gang, they, they get a lot, they get bumped around a lot because they were, they were ultra, ultra commercial and, you know, when they came out, but they had some bangers. And that Eighth Wonders track is a good one. I mean, like, I have the single on wax so you know and then another one that i like was um pump me up there's a couple of versions of pump me up now this one was trouble funk but there's also a grandmaster um a grandmaster flash version of it as well melly mel and that's the sample um that's the song that that q was cutting up in juice when he was doing his battle so every time i hear that pump 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 me up i'm immediately tuning the juice <laughs> so <laughs> And, uh, you know, JB mentioned rocking it, you know, rocking it is a classic, you know, I love that song, but the, 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 the one that I forgot was on here was feel the heartbeat, mm-hmm. the treacherous three, mm-hmm. that song. I love that song just because of the sample. Anytime I hear that beat, you, you it makes me want to dance. It takes me back to like the old house parties, the old cookouts. There's so many songs that use that, that track. So, but that, that feel the heartbeat is a good one. They even played The Wanderer by Dion. Did you catch mm-hmm. that? The, the, the oldie, yep. right? When yeah. they played that, and it was a lot of the subway graffiti coming by, showing the, the, the burners and stuff. That was awesome. That was really neat. That was well, well, well chosen. Yeah. Well, well done. So they did a great job with this. And people don't realize, everybody just kind of says it's the 80s, but it was really this late 60s, early 70s, starting the hip-hop culture. You get to see the artists that that started it all with the graffiti scene. One thing that really caught my attention, they named 
who they thought was the original graffiti artist named Taki183. <laughs> so I had to do some research on Taki. I'm assuming by the name that it's um, a Japanese guy or something like that. <laughs> He's a Greek-American graffiti artist. And he started in the late 60s and early 70s. And all he would put was his name Taki, T-A-K-I, 183, because he lived on 183rd Street in Washington Heights. <laughs> but he spawned a lot of uh, imitators, people just putting their name and a number next yeah. to it. Yeah, there, was a, there were a lot of guys doing tags and burners with that with their number behind their name. I remember that. There was a lot of them. I mean, the trains were their, were their canvas. And the big battle that you see is with back then Mayor Ed Koch in the early 80s. And he was saying that each cleanup costs about a million bucks because yeah. it spawns copycats. And they're saying this is a quality of life offense, like pop, like um, pickpocketing, shoplifting, defacing malls in public areas. He said, if you were, if you were a three-time offender, it would be five days in jail. So you see the battle between the local government, you know, the city government, transit authority, and, and the graffiti artists. So that, that was a, a big storyline. Yeah, the filmmakers really brought some balance to. I think you mentioned this before, but you would think that the protagonist in the story would be the graffiti artist, but they really did bring other perspectives into this, like vandalism, and people actually didn't like it, and so yeah. it also made the acceptance into the mainstream that we'll see later at the end of the movie about that thing that artists at the art show, and even today, modern day graffiti is more accepted in the mainstream uh, so i thought it was nice to see the sort of origin of you know, this co this conflict between underground art and public use <laughs> right yeah. as i watched there was there were a couple of the artists i rec as soon as i saw the, the names i recognized them and like just like with with lee one of the one of the guys that i definitely recognized was seen scene was a monster back in the day um they so they it was cool to see him showcase because I, I don't think i recall ever seeing what he looked like but i definitely seen some of his burners his burners are like world famous and i had like he was in that book that i had spray can art the scene was in there there were a couple of other guys that you didn't really see them forefront by definitely remember revolt and zephyr also were in that book as well so you know they had they had some pretty well known artists in the documentary so it wasn't just hey we're going to just go out and film it's like we're going to get the, the guys who were citywide you know as they called it they, they had their burners on all of the lines all around the city and said you know we're going to talk to these guys and kind of see what's going on so that was cool as well but yeah, you said, you know, it, it's, it was definitely a problem for people who didn't like it. So you, you, get, you definitely got to get both perspectives on it when you talk about something like this. Yeah, Scene's real name is Richie Miranda, and some people have dubbed him the godfather of graffiti. He started in the early 70s, and he would go on to work on canvas alongside Andy Warhol mm -hmm. and Lee Quinones, as you mentioned, Keith Haring, and... Uh, yep. Jean Michael Basquiat. Basquiat, yeah. Basquiat, yeah. Uh, he's he opened up a gallery in Paris in 2009. I was saying, and he's an absolute legend. And how about the young guy that had lost his right arm in the subway accident? Oh, case two. Yeah, case two. K A S E, right? Yep, he's another one whose name I recognize. 
he was super talented. You know, when he was introduced, he had, he had come back from a stint in jail. He didn't know about graffiti. That whole art had developed while he was incarcerated. He comes back and he was super talented. Unfortunately, like he had mentioned the, the electrical accent that he was in as a kid and he was severely hurt and they had to amputate his arm. But wow, he was so talented yeah, with, was, with his yeah. graffiti. And it's crazy because I, 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 that's another name that I recognized, but I never knew that he had one arm. I just knew that his work was phenomenal, but I never knew that he had one arm. And I remember he was taught that one story he was talking to, um, I think it must've been a reporter. And he was kind of, he was kind of getting his feelings to, Hey, you know, what do you think about this? So, you know, he's always, you know, somebody's got, you know, really good talent. He said, well, what if I told you I was, the, I did this. And yeah. the guy kind of was doubting him a little bit, but he said, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, well, I did do this, you know? And the guy's looking at him like, but you only got one arm. He's like, and? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he had a lot of moxie. I give him that. Yeah, uh, I read the history. Unfortunately, he passed away at age fifty-two. Uh, I think he had lung cancer or something. Yeah. Um, but if I could do a little bit of like kind of an op-ed piece on the whole battle between the protagonists, you know, the graffiti artists and the, the mayor and, and the transit authority, I see both sides of it. Obviously, I agree that no one should deface public property and it could potentially damage the integrity of the subway or the train cars. But the kids made a value, a valid point. The graffiti artists, there are murderers, there are thieves out there. And obviously they should have been targeted first to be apprehended. Not saying that they weren't, but I just thought that the government was a little bit short-sighted. These kids obviously need an outlet for their creativity. Yeah. If you think about it in, with a lens of today, there was no social media back then. So there's not a way to easily get your name out there. Today, you post a drawing or a photo on Instagram or Facebook. You can get recognition, even if it's among your, your small circle. That didn't exist back in the early 80s. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, at, at one point, the, that somewhat younger New York Transit Authority worker said, out of, out of an intellectual curiosity, I had a conversation with one of the crews and he found the, them to be more articulate than, than I expected. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you think, you know, do you, do you ever want to, you know, do you want to kind of see where they're coming from, you know, get that perspective. Right. And they did develop some sort of contest. I think they mentioned that one of the crews would be selected to paint the interior of, of one of the subway cars, but yeah. still didn't stop them from, you know, being quick to, to profile them and, and, and arrest them. In fact, yeah, they, they put up the barbed wire fences. They, they whitewashed, spent so many hours and hours whitewashing the trains. Mayor Koch even said something about, can we put a wolf out here? <laughs> I was cracking yeah. Like a wolf? Yeah, he wanted to put a wolf there. <laughs> that was funny to me. Yeah. But like, like you, you touched on the, about them not having an outlet. And yeah. you know, the first, the first thought that came to my, to my mind was when we were discussing, um, Breaking two, and we were talking. I was talking about how you know with miracles and they want to cut funding and you know close down programs and things like that. And what are the kids going to do? Well, here you have an instance before those programs and things were established. You know what were they doing? They had to find something to do, something that was entertaining, somewhere to put their creative outlet onto something. And there was no, you know, they couldn't, you know, there were no art galleries that they can go to at that time. You know, not in the beginning, you know, they wanted to get their name out there. They wanted to express themselves. And 
they found a way to do it. Right. I mean, I think they should have been looking at the big picture. Maybe we need these outlets. We need more charter schools or community events promoting the arts. Commission them to do more work, maybe like a work study or co-op program. Hook them up with an ad agency. But but no, they spent all this money. They 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 hired the boxers, Hector Macho Camacho and Alex oh, Ramos. Ramos. Yeah. yeah Ramos. They hired them. They were uh, boxing champs and an ad agency, obviously. And I just thought that their their slogan was was really cheesy. It was like, take it from the champs, graffiti is for chumps. <laughs> and then yeah. there was another slogan they had, which Mayor Koch even screwed up at the press conference. It. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, make your mark in society, not on society. society. That was yeah. <laughs> that was weak. That was weak, in my opinion. Yeah. Have you ever watched the the, the movie the show Fame? Oh yeah, years ago. I mean, Kara. Yeah, that was Irene Cara and Jean Ray. That was um, Coco and, um, and and Leroy from Fame. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I was like, wow, how'd you rope those two in? <laughs> but you know what was funny? The funny part, the part that it gave me was such a chuckle when you mentioned that that Mayor Koch, she botched up the slogan. Yeah. And the person asked him, are those posters graffiti proof? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Oh man, I almost fell off the chair. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> oh man, I got such a chuckle out of that. That was such a witty question. That was funny. Another thing that made me laugh the one guy, I don't know if it was seen or not. One of these guys looked like Meathead from All in the Family, Rob Reiner. Did you just catch that? Was that seen? Oh, oh no, yeah. that was Cap. Cap. Oh, yeah, Cap, right. That was Cap. Oh, so let's talk about Cap, right? Yeah, let's talk about him. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, Cap was the guy, similar to Spit and B Street, that was just putting his name on top of other people's work. Like Scene, he would, he would, he would just spray Cap over Scene and take everybody off. Yeah, he was taking off a whole lot of people too, and it's and it's crazy because they were they were saying that you know they had like a a, a group meeting. But nobody necessarily wanted to confront him because they, there was a rumor that he was a large guy, a rather large guy. So nobody wanted to confront him one on one. But they were talking about it. Said, yeah, nobody feels like his work is worthy. But, you know, he's destroying everybody's burners. But yet nobody wanted to confront him. But I think they probably were getting to the point where they were going to run down on him. But, uh, yeah, it was it was it was it was sad because some of the some of the work that they were putting out was really, really good. And he was just kind of you know, defacing their work because he didn't like it. And he wanted to, he wanted his name um, everywhere. He said it wasn't even about quality. It was about quantity. He would put his name on every car if he had to, just to get it out there, Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't necessarily be quality work. It was just getting it there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Meathead. Meathead. There's always going to be one rebel. And I, I, I looked up some interviews with him later on in the years. And it was like, I know I'm going to play by my own rules. Just always one of those guys. Just like, I don't care. This is what I'm going to do. I want my name to be in the spotlight. Yeah, there's always one of them. Yep. There's, a, there's a certain irony with someone defacing a defacing. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> art imitates life, imitates art or something. Yeah, pretty much. 
Yeah, there was there was a couple of other points that that I, I did I did notice through the movie too. There was one I don't remember the kid's name, but it was it was a white kid, and he was uh talking about you know going down to the hardware store or whatever, and he how he would grab so many cans. And he would just, you know, hey, I get all of these cans. I can get all of these cans in one shot and just walk right on out. But he was talking about how difficult it was for the black Latino kids to get them because everybody was kind of profiling and keeping an eye on them. Well, meanwhile, he was the one that was running around the store, snatching all the cans up. And it's like, wow. I, I mean, I worked in loss prevention. and I've actually seen stuff like that happen <laughs> in my store while I was working. So it was like, Wow. <laughs> And then that, that was some, that stuck out. That's stuck I picked out up on that too. Yeah. But there was some inclusivity in this too. I mean, case two had one arm, and there were all sorts of races that in the scene. And so oh, yeah. you know, I thought that that something that you sort of forget or you don't really know is that you know it wasn't just one race or oh, no. one group of people doing this. It's kind of inclusive for the time. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was everybody, and that's the th- that's the one thing too that 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 always seems to, to happen in in you know areas with lower income is that you know people mesh together well, you know they they get along, everybody gets along. It's it's usually the people with the most money they find ways to keep those keep those groups divided by by pointing out things that are different between them. But in essence, they're all the same. They're all there. They're all in the same struggle. They're all dealing with the same you know, environment, the same hardships, and, you know, they have the same passion, the same music, everything. And they were all kind of, you know, yeah, like you said, it was very inclusive. A lot of people probably didn't, wouldn't even would have known that if they didn't see that documentary. They probably just think it was all Black and Latino kids doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. There was a young white boy that was funny. He must have been, like, in his early teens, and he was talking the game, and all, all the cans and I was like, wow, I didn't realize the kids like this were, were doing a lot of the graffiti. Yeah. Young. They were young too. Yeah. Yeah. But all in all, I think they did a great job with this documentary. It was captivating. Yeah. Showed you both sides. It had, it had some great, Great music. You got to see up close. You got to see how they actually did their work. This the battle between the New York City government and the the crews. Very well done. Yeah. One thing that I didn't like about it as much, just as just me, but they showcased a little bit of, of every element that was around at the time. And I'm a DJ, but you didn't hear much about the DJ in it. So <laughs> it's like, you know, they had to have, they were, there was music being played. You know, where was the music coming from? But the B-Boy last I was there, you know, you had the Rocksteady crew, you know, battling club. And and then you had, you know, rap, the music playing. You had guys, even um, Case 2 and his homeboy, they were, you know, acapella, a verse from The Message before the music came on. You know, and I'm like, when I heard them, at first I thought they were freestyle. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. I know those lines, you know, pushing <laughs> the girl off the train. The next day they saw the arm one again. That's, that's Melly Mel. <laughs> <laughs> and then the music came. I'm like, all right. <laughs> but that, that's probably the one thing I, like, I would have liked to see a little bit more of, of the, 
a little more of the DJ in it, but that's just me because I'm a DJ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't even about DJs. It was about the spray can, um, the spray paint and lifestyle. So it, I think it was good, though. And like we said in the beginning, it, it won the top award at the Sundance Film Festival for Best Documentary in 1983. And uh, I saw a quote from A.O. Scott from the New York Times about Style Wars. And he indicated that Style Wars is a work of art in its own right because it doesn't just record what these artists are doing. It somehow absorbs their spirit and manages to communicate it across the decades so that we can find ourselves so many years later in the city understanding what made it beautiful. I thought that was a great quote. That's a great quote. That's a great quote. I heard that they released it Several years later, like a, a DVD series, and it had a ton of the the subway trains painted, almost like a digital gallery, which would be kind of neat to, neat to have or, or check out one time. Wow, I wonder if that's yeah. I wonder if that's on the actual DVD that you can purchase now. It might be like a um, uh, special features or something on it. Because I was thinking about picking up a copy because that was one of the the movies that I've always wanted to add to my collection, but I never got my hands on one. And now that I, now that it's back in my head, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go get me a copy of it, <laughs> add it to the collection. There you go. So I didn't really dislike anything about it. I just had sort of questions. Um, yeah, what were your questions? One yeah. was the mural that scene does in broad daylight. Was, was it sanctioned? I meant to look up, look into this. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. this was this, so this was official. Um, so that yeah, was that was probably yeah, that was probably sanctioned because I remember like there was a rec center in my neighborhood. I have a picture saved on my phone, but some guys were sanctioned to do to do a mural on the wall for the rec center. So that was probably what it was. The the owner of the business was probably somebody that was young and hip to the to the culture. I said, hey, you know what? Here's a wall. Put something nice up. <laughs> yeah, and from a larger perspective why was it subway cars that got was like the best canvas so because they moved around the city and you could show them off like you didn't really see buses get uh tagged like this or, or painted like this so it's sort of interesting thinking about yeah subway cars yeah yeah I maybe there's an element of danger too maybe like oh let's flick into a bus depot it's not as much fun as like jumping into a train yard <laughs> yeah i'm thinking like probably because of the trains when they were new they, they were white they were gleaming yeah. white <laughs> yeah where buses at that time they they weren't you know you had the yeah. metallic right. siding yeah. and everything Good point. yeah yeah but the bus is gleaming white so it's like hey <laughs> i'm sorry i think you can they can guarantee that your name would be seen in all five boroughs or depending on which line you hit. Yeah. Yep. That's what, that's what they want to guarantee. You don't know what the, the bus route might be. Right. They did mention that the danger factor too. They did mention the third rail again, which we learned about in B yeah. street. Yep. So it's kind of like that exhilaration of risk factor as well. Yeah. <laughs> now, I remember when they were talking about, they were talking about putting the dogs, in, the guard dogs in there. And somebody said you didn't want to put the dogs because they, they can get on the third rail. That's right. <laughs> oh, let's put double side, double fences up. Okay. <laughs> Fencing the dogs in. I guess, <laughs> I guess in order for the culture to have evolved, you needed public transit in that way. So it's, it wouldn't have worked if there's not a subway system. So sorry, non-subway system city. 
You're not gonna have hip hop <laughs> grow in your city. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, it was one thing that I found that was really funny too, and I kind of chuckled at it. Another point when they were talking about, you know, everybody was starting to develop their styles. They brought up the arrow, and mm. I was like, "Oh my god, the arrow!" The arrow was everywhere because I remember, like, even to this day, like I, I would, depending on what I draw out. I'll always put an arrow somewhere in it and I'll break it up and I'll make it like a 3D arrow. And then yeah, the arrow, it was like, yeah, the arrow was everywhere. That was, that was such a key point of, of lettering was that arrow. <laughs> it hadn't occurred to me until he mentioned that, that yeah, you do have a lot of arrows. There's nothing mm-hmm. there to that. Yep. And that became a trend. Yeah. It's so funny because all of the drawings that I used to, that I've done, I don't even know whether I just kind of draw them and they end up in a book or a folder or somewhere, and I don't remember where I put them at. <laughs> the only one I can locate right now is the one with my name on it, and the one that I sketched a couple weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someday you'll find it and it'll be a big bonus for us. <laughs> the treasure trove of yeah. graffiti burners. The lost, the lost art. The lost art. <laughs> for millions yeah, well, I would recommend this documentary to anybody that wants to see the early days of hip hop culture and graffiti at its at its prime and the battle between government and the graffiti crews yeah really a nice job <laughs> how about that dump cotch burner <laughs> <laughs> oh that's right that was that scene was it scene that did the one where it was the crew being chased by the cop. That was, oh no, that was that was that was, that was scheme. Scheme, okay. Yeah, that was scheme. Yeah, that was scheme. Yeah, that was the crime in the city burner. Right. Yeah, that was classic. That dump Koch was funny. He's like, okay. you know, oh, I guess I'm doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> but I, speaking of speaking of scheme, I, I, I felt bad for his mom. I can imagine how she felt because, you know, he's, he's, but it, it was crazy because they had a great relationship in the sense that he was so open with her. Like a lot of people his age probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have such an open, honest dialogue with their mom. But he's like, yeah, you know, I wanted her to know where I'm at. I wanted her to know exactly what I was doing. And she, you know, she deserves to know. And I'm like, wow, that's very admirable, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It was very different. I felt too. Yeah. And she's sitting there and, you know, they're, they're like, well, you know, how do you know? Like, oh, he's, he told me. <laughs> he, t- he told me exactly what he was doing. That's why I'm able to tell you. <laughs> it's like, well, I felt kind of bad for her in a sense, though, because that's a lot of stress. You know, you know, your son's out there. And it's not even the fact of him getting caught by the cops, because that's probably the best thing that could happen to him. Because you know that even if they catch him, he's going to he end up in jail. You know, he'll be safe. But there's the, the third rail is out there, you know. He could fall and get hurt, can electrocute himself on the third rail. There's all kinds of elements, things that can harm him. And that's that had to be very, very stressful. I remember my mom would always tell me, be careful when you go outside, you know, and be careful of your surroundings and things like that. And I know even to this day, I'm, I'm, I'm about to be 46 and my mom still worries about me. So I couldn't imagine, you know, how his mother felt with him being out there at those times at night, putting up burners and things like that. Oh, yeah. Early 80s, too. You're at the height of uh, a lot of drug use in the cities before it got really cleaned up. 
Yeah. A lot of unsavory elements out there. Right. You know, normally at this time I would ask, you know, could this be made today? But I don't think that's a valid question here because this is a point in time documentary, right? Yeah. I don't think it needs Absolutely. to be made today because it's, <laughs> they really, they, they, they uh, didn't have to. They, the original is still the best. Right. It holds up. You, had, you know, the, the thing too is that, you know, you have a documentary and you're talking about, you know, kids that are doing an, an illegal activity. And they're walking around with their faces all in the camera, you know, following them around, talking and everything like that. You could never do anything remotely close to that today. You know, the, <laughs> it would never, it would never work. No one would agree to it. Yeah. I was surprised have, to see their actual faces. There wasn't yeah, any. They don't have masks going and no masks are obscuring their voice. faces. <laughs> talking in shadows. None, none of that. It's like, yep, this is what Cap looks like. Looks like Rob Reiner. <laughs> And I thought that was funny when we mentioned the very first one, they mentioned Taki 183. He actually literally put his street name on his burners. And who does that? You yeah. know, there's no surveillance. There's no social media. Not today. Everybody has a camera in their pocket in the form of a cell phone. So none of this is possible today with the amount of surveillance that these uh, the transit authority has and, and everything like that. It's a different era, different time, uh, but it it was real and it's historical, yeah. and very significant. Absolutely. So all in all, uh, let's do our rating that we typically do at the end. We always like to ask, you know, bring that funky flick back, bring that, bring funky, that funky flick, flick back, back, or leave it in the vault. <laughs> Dino Wright, what do you got? Definitely, 100%, absolutely. Bring that funky flick back. Boogie? Bring it back and bring it back and bring it back. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. Bring that funky flick back. Bring this is must-see. Back. I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, never let it never let it into the vault. Keep it out. Nope. nope. Don't keep it anywhere near the vault. No, no, this stays in heavy rotation. Yeah, man. I wonder. I was wondering, but like, should people, if they hadn't seen any of the movies we talked about in these first five episodes, what should they watch first? And I wonder if they should watch Style Wars first, then maybe Beat Street, and then maybe Wild Style, and then maybe maybe Breaking and Breaking Two. What do you guys think? I like that order. Yeah, that order could work. I feel like you start with like the real the reality the yeah see the reality then, of it first and then you and then Beach Street would be the next thing because then there's a more connection to you know I think Beach Street was based on a lot of Style Wars stuff yeah yeah and yeah Beach Street was and, and Beach Street was you know in the time frame too like I think Style Wars gives a lot of the historical context yeah the background you know how it all started. You don't really get that with Beach Street. Beach Street's kind of just here's a story, boom. Yeah. But you kind of know what's going on and you get a little hints in there. But yeah. yeah, I think Star Wars just kind of lays it out first. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we'll give a shout out to PB, who we talked to earlier today and big supporter of our show. Oh, yes. PB. Thank you. 
Thanks, PB. Uh-huh. Boogie just pulled out Furious Five record. Nice. Hip Hop Movie Club is produced by your HHMCs, JB, Boogie, and Dino Wright. Theme music by Boogie. Special thanks to Susan Berger, Tawanda Edwards, and Allison Yaris. Hit us up at hiphopmovieclub at gmail.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hip Hop Movie Club. You can also check us out at hiphopmovieclub.com. On the next episode of the Hip Hop Movie Club podcast, your HHMCs will discuss the all time classic Friday, starring Ice Cube and Chris Tucker. But wait, there's more. Watch your feed for a little bonus content next week. Subscribe today in your favorite podcast app and you won't miss any of it. Shout out to you listeners. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, don't hate, educate.